0: Hey guys, real quick before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. All right, so our first question that we're gonna take uh, came ahead of time. It's from Reformed Watchmen. And it's this, what's your take on the Jezebels in conservative churches? Why won't anyone speak up? And those who do are canceled. Let me read it one more time. What's your take on the Jezebels in conservative churches? Why won't anyone speak up? And those who do are canceled. I appreciate you, Reformed Watchmen, giving us this question. I also appreciate you putting conservative, that word in quotation marks, because of course, um, when this occurs, what you've just described, these churches are quasi-conservative. They're not truly being conservative if they are not biblically faithful, and if they are not willing to actually address sin as the Bible requires us to do so. So, uh, let me go ahead and start with Scripture. This is Second Kings, chapter nine, verses thirty through thirty-seven. Second Kings, chapter nine, verses thirty through 37. What I want us to start with is looking at the final demise, the end of Jezebel, because eventually she was dealt with, although it took quite some time. Beginning in verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. All right, let me stop there for a second. She knows she's in trouble. All right, this is Jehu. He is the king. In northern Israel, and he is coming to eradicate the house of Ahab. Ahab had uh, done much terror in Israel, right? He's the one who famously says to Elijah, uh, What do you want, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah, the prophet, responds correctly by saying, I am not the one who is troubling Israel. You are. You are. Let me stop right there for a moment. Um, in our evangelical churches today, when we think of troublemakers, right? The apostle Paul was labeled one who stirs up riots. One who, not just a rioter, but someone who orchestrates and causes riots, right? So the apostle Paul was labeled divisive by the pagans, by the pagans. They thought he was a rioter. They thought he was quarrelsome, right? The same apostle Paul who tells who tells us that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, is, is accused of being quarrelsome and a rioter, one who stirs up riots, somebody who is divisive. Elijah is accused by Ahab of being a troublemaker and Israel. But what we find in the pattern of scripture, especially in the writings of Paul, is that the one who is actually the cause of trouble for Israel For the church, for the people of God, the one who actually causes trouble, the one who is actually the rioter, the divisive person, the quarrelsome person, is the one who introduces error. The one who introduces error. We've got to get this. Listen, we label people as divisive based off of exclusively one criteria, their tongue. Their tongue. If we think that their tone is not sugar and spice and everything nice, we say that they are quarrelsome, argumentative, divisive, not gentle, not winsome. But what we see again and again throughout Scripture, especially in the writings of Paul, is that how we say something matters. But first and foremost, when we're trying to discern what is truly divisive, the first category that we address is not how something is said, but what is said. Not, not the messenger, but the message, not the tone, but the substance, what is actually being said. And what the apostle Paul tells us multiple times is this. It's the false teachers who most often have smooth and flattering speech. In other words, By Evangelifish standards today, the false teachers have the good tone. They're the ones with good tone. They're the ones with what would appear to be gentle tone. But the Apostle Paul says that they are the ones who are instigating division. They are the divisive party. They're the party guilty of division. Why? Because they're the ones who introduced error. They're the ones who introduced error. So then when someone comes and corrects, reproofs, rebukes them, even if they use strong language at times, that person using strong language to rebuke the heretic is not the one who's divisive. You know who's divisive? The heretic. The heretic is divisive. They're the ones upsetting whole households. They're the ones who are troubling Israel. They're the ones who are causing division. They're the ones who are stirring up quarrels. They are the divisive party by, by virtue of not first and foremost, how they say things, but first and foremost, what they say. The one who introduces error is the one who is first and foremost divisive. Now, can we correct theological error in a way that is lacking the fruit of the Spirit in regards to how we speak, even though what we say is true? Sure, sure. But I think that Jesus would speak to many of our big evil leaders today and tell them exactly what he told the Pharisees, you are straining gnats and swallowing gnats. Camels. how that camel taste? Hope it doesn't choke you on the way down. How's that camel treating you? Right? You're straining gnats and swallowing camels. In other words, you are spending all of your efforts punching to the right, punching without, without uh, pulling any of your punches, without uh, weakening any of your blows. You are punching as hard as you can to the conservative Christian on your right who is correcting error and and doing nothing with the ones who introduced the error in the first place because they had smooth and flattering speech. One of the reasons that error is successful in infiltrating a community is because it's, it's introduced like poison in a spoonful of sugary smooth flattering speech that's one of the why why one of the reasons why error and false teachers are as successful as they are because even though what they're saying is poison how they're saying it is smooth and flattering so elijah right he combats ahab And Ahab is married to Jezebel, just so we know all the players in the game to answer this question. So Jezebel is queen. She is the wife of Ahab. Ahab is the king. And Ahab, what is his sin? Well, there are multiple sins, but one is that he's a little boy. He's a child, right? Somebody has a vineyard and he wants the vineyard. He wants the land and he goes and offers to buy it for a certain price. And the person says, this is my family's land. It's not just valuable in terms of money, but it has sentiment. It has uh, legacy. Uh, it's not for sale. And Ahab, he goes away and he doesn't just say, okay, well, I'll find some other land. That's fine. That's your right. No, he goes away moping for the rest of the day. He, he, he doesn't want to be consoled. He's moping. He's pouting. He's a child. And then Jezebel counsels him, his wife counsels him on how to get the land by, by doing something that is wicked and unethical, sinful. So Ahab is a little boy. He is whiny. He is emotional. He is unhealthy. He is selfish. He is vain. And he's also apathetic. This is what you have, the dynamic between Ahab and Jezebel. Right there in that picture of what, that I just described of Ahab wanting this vineyard and, and moping because the guy wouldn't sell it to him and then the dynamic, the way that, that Jezebel engages her husband. This is what you have. You have a boy and his mom rather than a husband and his wife and sadly that would be an accurate description of many marriages in our nation and our culture today and sadly many marriages, even within the evangelical church. In my pastoral tenure, uh, by God's grace, uh, not recently, not since I've been planting a church here in Central Texas, uh, but in the past, when I pastored in California, I had to do pastoral counsel with many couples where the husband was a son and the wife was his mother. For all intents and purposes, that was the dynamic. It was not husband and wife. It was boy and mom. And that came through loud and clear in every counseling session. And these were the couples that were troublers in my ministry and troublers of the church. And what they would do is they would often accuse me or somebody else who was speaking the truth of being quarrelsome and divisive as they were introducing error, whether it be antinomianism, they didn't like when I preached God's law, whether it be feminism, they didn't like patriarchy, whether it be, and the list goes on and on and on. And this is common in the church. And what usually happens is that a pastor doesn't even have the courage to address these things to begin with, or if he does, when he when he inevitably experiences the slightest degree of opposition, he folds like a cheap, a cheap suit. He, he throws in the towel. He retreats. He quits, and he marks kind of that territory, that whole doctrine, patriarchy, whatever it is, fill in the blank, uh, can't go there. Can't go there anymore. And he doesn't go there. And he appeases this woman who's functioning not as a wife in submission to her husband, but rather as a mother leading her little boy husband around by a leash. And that is a common dynamic. All right. So all that being said, the players in the game, you've got Jezebel and Jezebel is the queen, the wife of Ahab. You've got Ahab. He's the king who's a little boy and he is apathetic and he is weak. He's effeminate. All those things, Jezebel is domineering. She, just like what God said in the curse given to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. That's not a romantic desire. Your desire will be for your husband, which means you're just going to want to be with him and love him. No, It's the same verbiage later used in Genesis chapter four, uh, when God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you sin's desire is for you a romantic sin just wants to love you can't no Uh, it's crouching at your door like a lion like a predator about to devour its prey its desire is for you meaning its desire is to rule you to master you to subdue you but you must rule over it right so the curse in genesis three is that the woman's desire would be for her husband meaning her desire will be to rule her husband but he will rule over you now the curse of sin is not patriarchy. Let me say that again. The curse of sin when sin entered the world, the consequence of sin was not patriarchy. The consequence of sin is that women won't like patriarchy. Yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be real in today's episode. I'll say it again cuz some of you you need to hear it, right? So this is for the the proverbial back row. <laughs> the curse of sin is not patriarchy. The curse of sin is that women don't like patriarchy. And you might say, well, men don't like it either. They're soft men. Yep, there are. But especially women. Well, give me a verse for that. I already did. Genesis chapter three. It's built into the judgment that God delivers specifically to the women. The man, Adam, has his own set of judgment. He has his own set of consequences, but particularly to the woman, one of the consequences, one of the curses of sin is that she will want to rule her husband. Patriarchy is not the curse. Adam named his wife. That's a form of exercising dominion. That was the mandate. That was the calling, the vocation given to Adam before sin ever entered the world. He was to be fruitful and multiply. He was to work and keep the ground. And he was to exercise dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all the beasts of the field. To Adam was given dominion. And one of the ways practically that we see Adam before sin enters the picture, exercising his dominion is that God brought to Adam each of the different kinds of animals and Adam gave them their name. And so they were called. And then God saw that there was no suitable helper, no helpmate for Adam that was suitable to him from among all the animals. So God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, for it is not good that man should be alone. And God removed one of his ribs and from the rib, not the dust of the ground as God made Adam, but from Adam himself, God made woman. Woman was made from man and for man as a helpmate suitable to man in helping him to carry out the commission that was assigned to him by God to work and keep the ground, to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion. And when God woke Adam back up and he saw the woman, The woman, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And what we see is that Adam, later on, he gives, the Bible tells us, he names Eve. In the same way that he names each of the different animals, because he has dominion over them, he therefore has the right and authority to name them, he also names his wife. That's patriarchy. God is a father, we live in the father's world, Adam was a father, right? Even the devil is a father, the father of lies. John chapter eight says, you're not children of Abraham. You're not children of God. Jesus says, "You're children, speaking to the Pharisees, you're children of the devil. You're a chip off the old block. Children bear a striking resemblance to their father. You look just like your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And here you are trying to murder me. Everyone has a daddy. It's either the devil or God. And in the human sense, there are civil fathers, there are familial fathers in the home, and there are ecclesiastical fathers in the church. Elders are to be men. And in that sense, elders play a role of spiritual fatherhood. Fathers in the home, fathers in the church, fathers in the state. So human fathers in each of the divinely instituted spheres, and then Father God reigning over all of that, and even The father of lies, the devil, who is father of all those who have not been adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Patriarchy is inevitable. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether you will be underneath fatherly rule. That's what patriarchy means fatherly rule. It is not whether. Fatherly rule will exist, and whether or not you will participate in it, it's simply which father will you have? Which father will you have? So, the curse is not patriarchy, the curse is a woman's aversion to patriarchy, and that's what we see in Jezebel. So, one, we see a domineering spirit, we see a feminist spirit. But in addition to that, and these two things typically go hand in hand, not always, but typically, we also see perversion. We see sensuality. We see uh, sexual enticement. Jezebel uses her feminine power in order to rule over men. God has given. Men are powerful, but so are women, just in a different way. God has given to women power. Women listening right now, you you have a remarkable power given to you. And you know this, and you need to be very careful in submission to God, not to abuse that power and to use the power that he has given you for loving your husband, serving your husband, pleasing your husband, not to use that power to usurp fatherly rule, not to use that power to somehow entice your husband or hold sexual engagement over your husband's head or to seduce, God forbid, other men who are not your husband, Right, we we preach all the time in the church, right? Every Father's Day sermon is men do better. And every Mother's Day sermon is thank God for mothers. Um, I I thank God for mothers. That's a good sermon. And on Father's Day, I think we could also do thank God for fathers. I think both are, are good sermons. There are plenty of sermons that address the sin of men, but not many sermons addressing the sin of women. But the Bible addresses the sin of women. The only way you can avoid it as a pastor in your preaching is by not being an expositional preacher, not preaching the Bible, right? The Proverbs are filled with with verses about dangerous, seductive, domineering, feminist women, right? Her, Her house is like a graveyard with dead men's bones. She's a man eater. She's a man eater. My son, stay away from her, the wayward woman, the loud woman. Right? Rather than being beautiful in the way that God defines beauty, 1 Peter chapter 3, a quiet and gentle spirit, an inward beauty, an imperishable beauty in the sight of God. Instead of that, right, God sees beauty as an inward imperishable beauty of the heart, which is defined as a quiet and gentle spirit. And what we see in our culture today, and sadly even in the church, is we see not gentle and quiet women, but loud women. They talk Loud. They talk a lot. They draw attention to themselves on social media and TikTok. They are loud. The way that they dress, scoffing at modesty, they dress loud. Their speech is loud. Their dress is loud. The way they walk, the way they talk, it's loud. It's look at me. It's the opposite of a gentle and quiet woman. And therefore, it is like a gold ring in a pig's snout, as the Proverbs also say, particularly of a woman who is not being quiet in her dress, that is not being modest, that it, it, it doesn't have discretion. A woman like that is beauty wasted. It's beauty wasted. It's something precious and priceless, misapplied, completely thrown away, completely cast off. That's Jezebel. Domineering and seductive. And in both ways, we could say in her speech and behaviors, and even in her sexuality, in her misuse of that power, her abuse of that womanly sexual power in both regards, both her her seduction and her speech and behaviors, and wanting authority, in both ways, we could define her in a single word. Jezebel is loud. She's a loud woman. And oh, how we have loud women in the church today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And we do exegetical gymnastics like you wouldn't believe. Triple backflips and aerials, (laughs) somersaults and cartwheels to get out of that. Nope. The text says, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. First Timothy chapter two, verses nine through 15. Women must learn quietly and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Because of a cultural issue happening right here in this time and place. Nope. Because of a creation order, the created order before sin ever even entered the world. This is God's patriarchal design. It's his design. So women should learn. They should learn theology. They should learn the things of God and they should do so quietly. They should do so submissively. They should do so humbly. And according to 1 Peter three, if they do so in all the ways I've just named, they will be doing so beautifully, beautifully in the sight of God. We have loud women in the church today, much like their mother Jezebel. And because they're loud, according to scripture, they would also be what God would consider ugly. Instead of a quiet and gentle spirit that is beautiful in the sight of God, we have loud domineering spirits that are, we can only surmise implicitly from the text, ugly in the sight of God. A perishable beauty that is fleeting right, that external physical beauty that goes away, it doesn't last very long, right, we all die ugly, just give it a little while, we all eventually die and rot and decay, we all eventually are ugly, and it's like the flower in the field, it's like the grass that withers, it's like the dew in the morning that's gone by afternoon, it's fleeting like a vapor, we have women who are loud and ugly, instead of quiet and beautiful. Is it all women? Of course not. Are there beautiful, precious women in the church? You betcha. You betcha. But there are also Jezebels, all right? So Ahab, a weak, pathetic boy. Jezebel functioning as his mom rather than his wife, domineering and seductive, loud and ugly. And you have Elijah, who is the prophet who has his own problems, by the way. Elijah has his showdown at Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. And he wins by the grace and power of God. And he puts all those false prophets to death by the sword and slits their throats. And then he gets scared and runs away, scared of Jezebel, God just answered by fire from heaven. And all of Israel, the people on the sidelines watching that have been limping back and forth between two opinions, they now declare with with a unified front that the Lord is God. So you've got the people at your back. They're with you. And all the prophets that Jezebel was harboring have been slain and yet Jezebel makes one threat and Elijah runs. He runs scared. Not Elijah's greatest moment. All right? So Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah, the fourth player in the game, Jehu. Elijah's the prophet. Jehu is the king. The king in northern Israel. Jehu comes into play. Verse 30. Second Kings chapter nine, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And so what did she do? She knew she was in trouble. She tried to save her life by doing what she had always done, using her power in an abusive, wicked way. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. There's a lot right there. She doesn't go down to meet him. She stays up in her fortified tower. She stays behind the defensive measures. She looks from the window and she paints her eyes and adorns her hair, trying to use her feminine beauty to exercise dominance over Jehu, to dissuade him from what he's come to do. Verse 31. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Well, what is she saying? You're the troublemaker. You're the you're the sinner. You're the divisive one. You're the one causing problems. You're the one who's done bad things. Not me. You. Spoken like every squishy evangelical over the last not just two years, but five years, six years. I remember preaching against critical race theory in 2018, I think. And, and tons of people in my church lost their minds, lost their ever loving minds that I was the one who was being (laughs) critical, that I was the one who was being quarrelsome. And I've gone back. I mean, the sermon is recorded. You can find it on right response ministries. It's a great sermon. I regret nothing. I recant nothing, but we lost dozens of people as I preached on that. And it was in the middle of my first Timothy series. Some of you guys have heard me mention this series where I lost 40 people in my church and my church was only 180 adults at the time. So a pretty big chunk right there, almost a quarter of the church. We lost a ton of people for, for saying critical race theory is a bad idea and and complementarianism shouldn't just be in the home, in the church, but I also don't think that women should be serving in combat roles in the military. I kid you not. 40 people because of that. And, and to my shame, right? I mean, those 40 people shouldn't have been in the church in the first place. What does that say about me? Right? I admit that's my failure. God was reforming me And as he was reforming me, I was repenting of my sin and my idolatry as a pastor, but then what am I going to do? Reform in my private life, be sanctified in my private life, but then leave the people to starve because I know that it's hard and I know that some of them won't like. No, everything that the Lord was feeding me with, I want to feed the sheep with right? That, that's one way you could define a good pastor. Many ways that you could talk about this, but one way you could define a good pastor is number one, that he's going to Christ on a daily basis for daily bread. And he doesn't withhold any of the bread he's given personally by Christ from the sheep in his flock. There's no bread that Christ has given to me that I don't give to my congregation in my council, in my preaching, in all of my ministry duties, whatever God is revealing to me, whatever grace he is extending to me, I am giving to his people. I am giving to the flock. As an under shepherd, as the chief shepherd nourishes me, I nourish his flock. That's what Jesus says to Peter at the end of the gospel of John, right? When Jesus is restoring Peter after Peter denied him three times, Jesus is restoring him. He said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. What does it look like for a pastor to love Jesus? Feeding his sheep. And therefore, by way of consequence, what does it mean when a pastor takes specific food groups, to use this analogy, like meat or vegetables or fruit or grain and says, I'll feed your sheep. But this Food group over here, we're just, we're just going to take that off the menu. There won't be any vegetables in their diet. Because, because I've noticed that when I feed your sheep vegetables, they get a lot of regurgitation. And they start vomiting on each other and me. So we'll just take vegetables out of their diet. I mean, I'm sure they'll be fine. Right, The analogy breaks down because I'm not really sure what sheep <laughs> eat, little sheep, but you get my point. And pastors don't have the right to do that. We, we give the people of God um, exactly what God gives us, well-balanced meals. Every food group that we need, every nutrients that we need represented and present and accounted for. That's what we do. But I get it. I understand the temptation of pastors to avoid this form of faithfulness because of the outright demonic reaction. I mean, shrieking and wailing and gnashing of teeth that comes from evangelicals within the church. Whenever we address certain sins, primarily the sin that is unique among women a Jezebel spirit. There's a lot of different idols that you can go in and tear down. And nobody likes when you tear down idols. But you can get away with a lot of that reform, a lot of that reformation. But you start (laughs) calling out Jezebel, that particular adulteress, that pagan, that troubler, whew, Brace yourself. Brace yourself. All right. Verse 31, Jehu enters the gate. Jezebel says, you're the troubler. You're a murderer of your master. Verse 32, he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? He's not speaking to Jezebel. He's speaking past Jezebel. He's speaking to the people. Who's on my side? He's not even acknowledging her. So she throws out a false accusation. He doesn't even engage it. Notice that he's not even dealing with it. It's just what you're saying is so slanderous, so ridiculous. I'm not even going to, to dignify it with a response. He speaks right past Jezebel says, who's on my side. Another way to put it, who is not on the side of this witch? You know what she's saying is slander. You've known it all along. Who is going to finally take a stand and stop tolerating what God hates? Who will do it? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Two or three eunuchs behind past Jezebel also looked out the window that she's looking out and look at Jehu. And he said, not to her, but to them, throw her down. And so they threw her down out of the window and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter But when they went out to bury her, so he's saying she's a cursed woman, she's wicked, she needed to die, but she is a king's daughter, we will give her a burial. But when they went out to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah, the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. And her corpse would be unrecognizable, ripped to shreds, and the majority of it eaten and digested by the dogs. Precisely what she deserves." Because that's how we deal with sin. I've used this illustration a ton of times, but I think it's fantastic. And it always gives me a bit of a chuckle. So I'll use it again. Batman and Joker. Joker keeps causing trouble. And Batman, he beats him again and again and again. But at some point as a little kid, I remember just thinking, Batman, why won't you just kill Joker? You keep subduing him. You keep making sure that he's imprisoned. But we know that that in the case of Joker, there's no reform. He's not a good guy deep down who's going to eventually come around and mend his ways. The only way to truly neutralize the threat of Joker is to put him down. Not just put them away, but put them down, kill Joker. And so it is with sin. So it is in the Christian life with idolatry. We are called not to subdue and not to quarantine, not to manage, not, not to imprison, not to quarter, but to mortify sin kill sin. The Puritans said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The reason why we tolerate sinners is because we tolerate in our own hearts sin. The reason why we tolerate people like Jezebel is because we, at some extent, are tolerating some of those very same sins that give birth to the terror of someone like Jezebel. And so what you need is this. I'll finish the question with this. What you need, I think, is number one, you need a team. There are multiple players in this equation. Jezebel would not have been the terror that she was. She would have been just as wicked of a woman, but her wickedness would have been more restrained in terms of what she was able to do the wickedness she was able to accomplish if it wasn't for her position, her proximity to the king and a weak king at that, King Ahab. Right, so one of the things that we need to do if we're going to deal with Jezebel in the church um, is we need to deal with Ahabs that empower her. Guys who would never actually say the garbage that she says out loud but they but they are are the ones responsible for creating the protections that allow her to say what she says right the ahabs there are ahabs in the sbc there are ahabs in the pca there are ahabs in the gospel coalition. They're also just flat out Marxists in the gospel coalition, but some of them, they're not Marxists, but they're Ahabs that, that make provisions for the Marxist, right? So one, you got to deal with Ahab in order to deal with Jezebel. Uh, two, you need prophets, kings, and eunuchs. Prophets, kings, kings and eunuchs. You need an Elijah, but you also need a Jehu. Notice Elijah, he knew that Jezebel was wrong, and Elijah was used by God, by the Spirit of God, to get a lot of progress on that particular issue. He cried out against both Ahab and Jezebel, and he ultimately was the one who God used to put all of Jezebel's henchmen, the prophets of Baal, to death. And he won the people of Israel back over. So Elijah was used by God to do a lot. But the death blow delivered to Jezebel herself so that she couldn't regroup and become a terror again in the future was not the prophet, but the king, Jehu. We can't just have prophets. We need prophets. Oh my, don't misunderstand me. We need more prophets. They are willing to speak unapologetically the word of God and to speak it boldly, to speak it publicly. But we also need kings. And what I mean by that is we need Christian men in positions of leadership that will actually listen to the prophets and do what they say. See, one of my concerns is I mean, I'll look at Twitter, you know, or I'll look at YouTube, or I'll look at, you know, all these different, you know, platforms. And by God's grace, there's still not a lot of us, but God is raising up some prophets, right? You got Eddie Robles, you got John Harris, you know, you've got guys in, in this sphere of evangelicalism who are sounding the alarm and speaking truth. But a lot of these guys, like John Harris and A.D. and myself don't have a whole lot of institutional power and leadership. One of the reasons we put our finger on Big Eva is because we're not a part of it. We're not headline speakers at their conferences. We don't have a seat on the board at Gospel Coalition, nor would we want it. We don't pastor large churches. A.D. and John actually don't pastor at all, but I don't pastor a large church. We're prophets, but you also need kings, right? And, and the prayer is not just for common grace kings, for lack of a better phrase, right? Like King Cyrus. King Cyrus is the one who, who funded the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the temple, but he wasn't necessarily a Christian himself. So he was willing to use his kingly power and position to, to fund um, righteous deeds, but it's doubtful that, that an unregenerate king like Cyrus, who in God's common grace was willing to fund righteousness, it's doubtful that he would punish wickedness. That takes, in most cases, a regenerate king, a Christian king, someone who is willing who is led by the spirit of God, submitted to the word of God, convicted and willing to listen to the Elijahs, the prophets, and then use his, execute his Jehu kingly power to actually put down all the idols and all the priest and priestess in these false pagan deities like Jezebel. The last piece of the puzzle, you need prophets like Elijah, you need kings like Jehu, but you also need eunuchs. Jehu gives an order to the people. He doesn't climb up and grab Jezebel himself and cast her down. So you have have Elijah who gives the word of the Lord, the prophet. You have Jehu, the king, who gives the order to the people, but then you have the people themselves that actually kill Jezebel. It's the people themselves until the people get it. The people are the ones who have to say no more tolerating Jezebel. I'll just be real frank. You will not get rid of Beth Moore until the people in the pews of the SBC say we've had enough. So you need kings and institutions like Al Mohler to make a stand and you need prophets They are prophets in the SBC, but to actually be listened to, but then you need eunuchs. Notice it's the people, but a particular kind of people. Eunuchs. What's unique about a eunuch as it relates to Jezebel? Jezebel is a seductress and eunuchs are invulnerable to her seduction. It has no power over them. They can't be bought. They can't be tempted. They can't be deceived. They can't be bribed. They can't be seduced. They can't be won over. They will not tolerate wickedness. And they're the ones in the final analysis that pick that woman Jezebel up and throw her down to the dogs on the ground. We need prophets like Elijah. We've got some. But oh, how we need kings like Jehu that'll listen to those prophets and partner with them. And you, listener, we need faithful Christians in the pews who can resist sinners like Jezebel because they themselves, in their own pursuit of holiness and sanctification, have not been harboring the sin of Jezebel in their own hearts. Meaning, It's not a coincidence that eunuchs throw Jezebel down from the window. You know who doesn't throw Jezebel down from the window? People in the SBC sitting in the pews that in secret have been using porn. There you go. That's real clear. Whatever sinner you see causing trouble for the people of God, Israel, you cannot effectively address it if that very same sin